from their actual narrative meaning, mm -hmm. uh, they become even more interesting mm -hmm. in the sound itself. Mm -hmm. And then I started wondering, but that's so easy. Mm -hmm. Maybe I sharpen the tool of attention much better if I'm listening or attending only to my breath, which is monotonous and, <laughs> and rather boring. Uh -huh. uh, but takes, but requires more uh, attentive energy. See, I, 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 I don't know. Probably sometimes A and sometimes B, because the 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 the. Uh, the operational word that you said when you talked about listening to sound was you said it's very interesting. And it's great. And you said the breath is essentially boring or same old breath. And when something is interesting, the mind picks up, you know, the attention picks up, you know. Like uh, if you're sitting in your study at home late at night and you suddenly hear a creak upstairs in a room that you didn't think anybody was in. You know, and all of a sudden, you are awake and you hear every creak. That something catches your interest, the mind wakes itself up, so the attention is enlivened. Not to make it sound that it only has to happen with something that's, that is potentially frightening, but when something is interesting in some way, oh, what's that? Or, oh, look at that. Or, oh, look at that. Uh, the attention wakes itself up. The, if you're out and you see a shooting star, oh, look at that. And then you start looking for more because the attention is waked up. So I think it's something between, uh, I could imagine that we'd be just looking around for a new entertainment and a new entertainment and not building any steadiness in the mind. But it hasn't been my experience that sometimes I've, I've, I've over the years become convinced that my mind by itself has a kind of a gyroscopic wisdom. And it knows when I'm playing too much to keep it awake. So just you know, back off and just breathe a little bit. And it knows by itself when I'm, when I'm just with my breath and I'm not really awake at all. Because you know, you can be with the breath pretty solidly and nobody's home. <laughs> you know when you see a cartoon and they want to show you somebody sleeping? And they show Z's and that little, and that little thing. So you have your eyes closed and you're not really sleeping, but you're pretty much sleeping. You know, there's nothing happening. I remember describing that to my teacher once years and years ago and saying, you know, I can sit there for hours and just, just there in, out, in, out, warm, relaxed, nice. And he said something like, what else is going on? I said, well, that's it. It's warm, relaxed, nice. He said, you know, that was half of the job. You get yourself there, warm, relaxed, nice. And then you look around and you say, what's true here? What's happening? Because it's all, the concentration part is half of it. The steadiness is half of it. Warm, relaxed, nice. And then what? Then you say, look, here's a breath and it's gone. Here's a breath and it's gone. Here's a breath. And it's gone. Everything that arises passes away, the Buddha said. Wow, yesterday I was 18, now I'm 75. Eek! Everything that arises passes away. That there's a way that if you look at what's going on, it's not just breath and mind resting. If you really look, you see what's really there. I think that um, I saw a, um, a translation once of... Uh, uh, insight meditation of mindfulness uh, as um, 
uh, vision profonde uh, in French. And I like that much better than mindfulness. You know, mindfulness sounds like pay attention when you get off the when you get off the uh, the metro in, in uh, London. It says mind the gap, means just don't fall in the space between the. And so, uh, mind where you step, or uh, uh, it means pay attention, but it doesn't mean pay profound attention. My profound attention when you're watching that is whoa. That was lovely to have somebody remind me to take care of myself. Or, whoa, it's amazing that I can stand on my own feet and still locomote out of this train. Or, whoa, look at this, here's a train. They didn't used to have trains. I mean, there's all kinds of things. I wonder what kind of fuel this train uses. I wonder what kind of an impact it makes on the carbon footprint of the world. I mean, there's all kinds of profound when you look at the gap, if you really look at the gap. Which doesn't mean that you have to slow down your life so that every moment is pregnant with the most amazing stuff, but that there's all, it seems to me that we see superficially until all of a sudden there are moments where we see amazingly. Um, I think earlier this year I told you I'd been struck by uh, reading the uh, description that Tom, Thomas Merton wrote that's now become... Uh, is now is referred to as the fourth and walnut experience of of Thomas Merton. I think it's fourth and walnut, something like that. Anyway, he apparently went to Louisville on one particular occasion to go to the doctor. He had back trouble, and he was crossing after many years at Gethsemane as a monk and cloistered, and a lot of years of contemplative practice, and was walking across fourth and walnut, if it was that, maybe it was. And all of a sudden, his understanding, his perception of you know, people were coming and going and crossing as they are at an intersection. And all of a sudden, it went from discrete people walking here and there to this is the world. People are coming and going on their way to other people and on their way to other people. And in some moment of expanded perception, when you, when you read it, it's hard to put into words, there's a moment of uh, Heinlein would have called it grokking. Grokking, that the whole world is coming and going, and myself as well, a part of the coming and going, and no one really separate from anyone else. I mean, on a, certainly on a physical level, uh, if I was standing next to Merton, he would be here and I would be here, his body, my body, but not independent of each other. If he fell over, I'd fall over. That, we're breathing the same air, that there are moments in which we really switch from I am in a life with other people to everything is happening in one amazing interrelated whole. And in that moment, we really are liberated from the sense of our own particular I, which according to the Buddha and any other philosopher talking about liberation, is really the source of freedom. That's a good place to go to talking about what I wanted to talk about today, which was what did the Dalai Lama teach uh, in, uh, in Washington, D.C. Uh, good, and I have time to do it. And the reason that I said, you know, I don't want to have any announcements now because I want to keep our prayers in my mind as we continue into what I want to talk about is, uh, I know I say this often, 
But when we do that every week, and people who I, only a few voices that I recognize, but here's a voice, there's a voice, man's voice, woman's voice, different voices, talking about people that I don't know who are dealing with something. You know, and usually it's a lot of things, you know, and sometimes things that you don't think about. And so, oh, look at that. That's another thing. It's like a catalog of, um, of tri uh, trials, travails that flesh and spirit are heir to. People are depressed, people are unhappy, people are in physical pain from this or that or the other. People are coming into this world or going out of this world or in, in jeopardy about staying in this world. And I'm sure that your experience must be as mine that I'm moved in two ways. I'm moved by uh, I'm moved by the sense of compassion that comes up in me, and I'm sure in you, for people that I don't know. I think I think that my, that's unique to human beings. You don't even know who's talking, let alone or the person that they're talking about. But you feel, whoa! I wish they'd be well. Whoa! I wish they'd be well. I think it's an extraordinary thing about human beings that we have com a compassion uh, capacity that's built into the organism. I was often when I say that I have a visual flash of uh, sitting at, uh, sitting up in that upper meditation hall one time in the middle of a retreat and hearing somebody crying in the back of the room and it's unusual people usually go out if they're crying because they don't want to make any noise and but I could hear somebody clearly you know, crying in the back of the room. And I opened my eyes to see who it was. And I knew, I, I knew that uh, the person, because I'd seen her in an interview, and I uh, also knew the person next to her because I'd seen her in an interview, and I knew they were from different places and didn't li li were not likely to be friends and, or know each other. But they were sitting there, and here's this woman crying, and this woman sitting. And of course, we have this rule about don't look at anybody, don't touch anybody, don't talk to anybody. And she didn't look at her, and she didn't talk to her. But she put her arm out, and she put it on her arm, sat there for a few minutes like that, and then put her arm back. When I tell that to stories to people, sometimes they say, whoa, not supposed to touch people. <laughs> Yes, you are, you know? Yeah. I mean, at the same time that we're here, you know, who knows that person might feel intruded in their space. I think it's much more likely that they'll feel comforted and that they'll feel part of the human collective and they'll get it that the message that you're giving them is that peace is possible. Everybody does this. You have, what you're doing is familiar to me. It doesn't frighten me. May you be sustained in whatever it is that's causing you to be crying now. Don't you think? I bet, you know, I haven't given that as a, I actually haven't given it as an instruction in the beginning of a retreat because I think we'd all be patting each other the whole retreat. <laughs> but I think that that's what that means. So His Holiness started, so to bring you up to speed if you weren't here just before I left, the last time I left, I was on my way to uh, Washington, D.C. to attend uh, the Ch Kali Chakra initiation that the Dalai Lama was conducting. And initiations are uh, part of Tibetan practice, and my background is not in Tibetan practice. But um, 
I'm very, I'm very uh, admiring and appreciative of, of the Dalai Lama. And he had said, this is the last time I'm doing this initiation in this life. So I thought, well, really have to go. And I went and I shared a hotel room with a friend that I love a lot from the East Coast. And uh, we were lucky enough to be six blocks away from the Verizon Center where the, uh, the program was. The Verizon Center, if you don't know, it's like Madison Square Garden. Uh, they play basketball in there. It's enormous. It, and 14,000 people came for this. My grandchildren said, so did you get to meet him? I said, <laughs> <laughs> along with 14,000 other, 14, other people, I sat in those bleachers. I had a nice seat. But. And uh, it goes on for a week. And the morning program is, uh, the first several days are preparation for the actual initiation. The actual initiation, Kali Chakra is a prayer for peace in the world. And you make prayers of preparation. There's a whole liturgy that the monks pray every morning from 7 until about 10, 10.30. And you're free to come whenever you want. You don't have to be there when it starts. You come in and here are all these Tibetan monks in robes on the raised stage. And His Holiness at that point is not sitting up on his throne where he sits in order to do the teachings. He's sitting amongst them. It's like a, a, seeing a congregation of monks doing morning prayers from those little books, you know, the little Tibetan books where they turn one page over at a time like this. And um, it sounded to me, it was a very beautiful sound. You came and you just sat and listened to the sound in terms of sound meditation. It was beautiful. You don't have to, I don't speak Tibetan, so. But I figured they're saying good things and prayers for everybody's well-being. And it sounds like, and every once in a while, there's a gong, and they do a gong, and a horn, and, and cymbals, and bells. So it's, got, it's, it's orchestrated. And uh, it's actually quite thrilling. You just sit there, and it goes on and on and on and on. And it's like being at a retreat. Um, you pay attention to that. And you, you greet your friends. People come in. People are respectful, so the hall is quite quiet. But... Uh, they come in, they whisper hello, they embrace, you know, just like a, it was, it was very, it was very comfortable. I didn't feel stiff at all about it. And then after they're finished, they give instructions about, okay, in the afternoon, His Holiness is going to give teachings, and then you all leave the center each time. There's a great deal of um, security with searches and, because there is a, you know, it's a very big security consideration with the Dalai Lama for reasons that are not particularly germane here. But so you file out, you go get something to eat, you stay out for a little bit, then you come back in, and you sit down again, and then he teaches for two or three hours. Um, half of it he teaches in, uh, he's sitting up on his like throne, and he teaches it. Uh, in uh, Tibetan, and then uh, uh, his uh, one of his primary uh, translators, whose English is Oxford wonderful uh, English, and is native Tibetan, and uh, has done this with him for decades, re-says what he just said. And at one point, and sometimes he would talk long in Tibetan, long, 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 then you think, first of all, how is it to, the translator going to remember what to do? You know, but the translator is making little notes, and I, he's probably 
giving certain speeches that he's given before, and the translator knows him. So it also has a kind of a calming effect. You listen to this long explanation in Tibetan, and you watch his hands, and a lot of times you can kind of figure out what he's saying. And just by his hands and his expression. Uh, and also, on top, I had very good seats, but on top of that, they had those enormous televisions that they have in sports arenas so that you could see him over here, huge and up there, in the middle, huge. It was, it was great to watch. And I, ha I had the feeling often that any minute, if I was listening very carefully, I was going to understand Tibetan, <laughs> that I'd just get it. And yeah, that, you know, that, because, you know, it was so clear. They were talking about da 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 I said, I know what he's talking about. Any minute, I'm going to get it. I, you know. And then, no, 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 I actually don't speak Tibetan. And then, uh, then the translator would do it all over. And then at one point, he said, you know, he said in English, what I think um, is uh, that uh, when I speak in Tibetan, and uh, my translator translates it, you get a more full explanation of what I mean because I can use a bigger vocabulary when I speak in, in Tibetan. But I think that when I speak in English, even that my English is a little broken, it goes in better. And I think you might be right, you know, that there's, that there's something about a transmission that it, in his tone of voice. And he said essentially two things in the beginning that I have been thinking about and reflecting about. He said two things to begin with. He said uh, there, are two, there are two things that you have to really understand in order for the mind to be liberated enough to really successfully make that vow to dedicate yourself to the well-being of all beings and peace in the world. And preparation for Kali Chakra is to really uh, open your own mind of complete presence and so, so what you have to understand are you have to understand um, impermanence you have to under, you have to really he said not, the impermanence was a subset he said you really have to have a mind filled with wisdom and he said the principal wisdom is the wisdom that things are impermanent Remember, often when we talk about what are the three characteristics of experience, everything is impermanent, always changing, that clinging to anything, because everything is impermanent and constantly in change, is suffering. That we are nothing but change. Our bodies are nothing but change. Our, these minds are nothing but change. Any, any imperative that anything remains static is immediately a, a, a discomfort because nothing is static. Uh, and the third is that everything is interrelated. You know that um, sometimes it's said that it's called uh, interconnection. Thich Nhat Hanh calls it interbeing. Everything that happens happens because other things happen. Uh, the, uh, uh, the, the, the One of the sort of enigmatic, or not enigmatic, but really pointed statements of the Buddha is because of this, that. Now, you know, you have to talk about what's the this and then what's the that, but nothing happens without a cause. There are causes and consequences. Sometimes he say that, uh, he also said, another way you can understand that is you really have to have wisdom 
of impermanence. And you really have to have wisdom of emptiness because it's the same thing. It doesn't mean that there's nothing in the world. It means, I mean, the world is full of everything. It means there's nothing in the world that isn't completely interconnected to everything else in the world, not only now, but back into time and into the future. Everything affects everybody. We're all breathing the same air. If one person here had some noxious virus, it would spread through all of us. If several of us had a wonderful, jubilant mood, that might also spread through all of us. There are ways in which, uh, visible and invisible, we affect each other. Um, We are all just so completely locked in a pattern of karmic unfolding. A man told me a story yesterday about, uh, wait, 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 what was the end of the story? It doesn't matter. Uh, It really doesn't matter. It was a great story, but the story doesn't matter because anybody could tell the story. I could say I am here now because... um, because uh, 40 years ago, my husband, who was a quite uh, a, a vigorous spiritual explorer, began to take workshops every weekend and come home and say, so this is a great thing. Try this meditation, try that meditation, try this, try that. I wasn't very much interested in any of those things, but I'm a fairly congenial person. So I, I tried this and that and this and that, and I got initiated into this and that and this and that. And I didn't keep on doing it because it didn't, actually grabbed me very much. But he continued on, and then at some point uh, I tried, he said, we really have to try, go off on a mindfulness retreat. And I did, and I never left. And, uh, but I don't know, maybe later on, I mean, it came into the culture, maybe I would have fallen into it in another way. But so happens that he went to a mindfulness retreat that Jack Cornfield was teaching. And he said, go to this mindfulness retreat. But that couldn't have. Ha- but I couldn't have gone to the mindfulness retreat that I went to, unless he had, and he couldn't have gone unless Jack had gone to Dartmouth, and had a Chinese professor in his junior year, who lectured by sitting on the on the desk in a cross-legged position, and that caught his attention, and he got really interested in Chinese philosophy and decided to study Eastern Eastern religions and then go to the East and uh, Asia and study. And uh, that couldn't have happened if Jack hadn't decided to go to Dartmouth and 10 other things. Nor could I, that any of it happened if my parents hadn't lived around the corner from each other and met each other and decided to get married and make a child. And you know, that, that the fact that I'm here is entirely contingent on a zillion events. And the, maybe the, the most proximal event of all is the fact that in this whole lifetime, 75 years, I've never been hit by a car and run over and killed. You know, there's a million cars that I passed, zillion cars that I passed in my life. So that when you think about everything being the serendipitous, complete surprise and completely um, conditioned, only thing that it could be in the world, one thing would be different. It would be different. So His Holiness said, you have to really get that. When you get that, it leads you, and he, over the course of the week, he, he unpacked that as, when you get that, you get to be much less judgmental about people. Because he realized that people are, you know, 
whatever is unfolding is the only thing that can be unfolding. It might not, you might not like it. Probably, if you don't like it, it's causing that person pain anyway. But you don't have to. You don't have to be judgmental about it. You could offer to be helpful. You could offer to be friend. You don't have to push people away. People are the way they are because they can't be otherwise. And think about what kind of a friendly mind is that? That's great. You know, I would like to have that kind of a friendly mind. Um, I often, I've often been saying that I, I'm not sure who it was. I don't. I think, I know, but I don't want to say. A, a, a fairly contemporary Zen teacher who died apparently saying on her final breath, thank you very much, I have no complaints, that uh, I want to be able to do that. You know, because there's so many times that you can say, ah, don't like this, don't like that, don't like this. Not liking in a form of a complaint, an imperative. You know, there are a lot of things that I'm not crazy about, but mm, in the mind is always the result of forgetting that it couldn't be otherwise. If it couldn't be otherwise, then you fix it up, you change it, you don't hang around with it, you have a different relationship to it. But contention or contempt or moving away from it, disdain, you don't have to do that anymore. It, it, so in the course of the week, uh, somebody when I came back said, did His Holiness say anything new? I said, no, you know, His Holiness didn't say anything new. Said the same old. He said, clinging is suffering. <laughs> And keeping an open and peaceful heart is the only way to be happy. It's not new. But you listen to it again, and you listen to it again, and listen to it again, and you get it. As I, I was telling somebody yesterday, you know, it's not, you, know, you just keep getting it. Suzuki Roshi, the first um, uh, Zen abbot in San Francisco, used to say about walking in San Francisco, he said, you can walk in San Francisco a lot, and it's not raining. That's actually, he said, but in San Francisco, you have fog a lot. He said, and if you walk a lot in fog, you walk a lot in fog, you walk a lot in fog, all of a sudden you think, wet. You know, so I think about learning the same way. You kind of, you don't know, and all of a sudden, got it. You know, that, uh, that, that, so you have to go necessary and sufficient conditions and hear him say it over and over again and radiate an incredible kind of goodness so that, you know, people who are doing this really are moved to do that. Something pulls it out from them. He's incredibly good. He said a lot of times that the, the most important thing, he said, is to be a good person. Uh, he said, um, he said, you don't have to be a Buddhist. He said, I'm not particularly interested in whether people are Buddhists. I'm interested in whether they're ethical people. He said uh, whether they're uh, self-absorbed or uh, concerned for others. That they have to be good people, concerned for others. He said, I have very good friends who are devout Christians. And when I talk to them, they talk about that they love God with all their heart, want to serve God, love God. He said, I think that's the same thing. When you love with all your heart, then you're released from being bound up in your own self-absorbed. They've given themselves over to loving something greater than themselves. He said, I think we do the same thing, except we call it the whole world. Um, he usually says a thing like that, he finishes, go, ha, ha. He's just got a really nice little laugh. He said, there's two things you have to understand. One is wisdom, one you have to have wisdom. 
how it is that it's impermanent, that uh, uh, clinging is suffering, that any kind of judgments are suffering. He said that in a million different ways. And he said also you have to cultivate a mind of um, infinite generosity. That was a really nice word, infinite generosity. Uh, uh, He said you have to have an altruistic attitude. I thought that was good, an altruistic attitude. You have to have concern for other people. And he said, because think about it, if you had infinite generosity, you would, by definition, have no greed, no hatred. Because when you have, you have hatred, you have a view of somebody there, the bad person, so I hate them. If you have infinite generosity, you give up that view. You give people the... the Benefit of the doubt. Uh, my friend Tony Bernhardt, who I think is going to come teach here a little bit later this summer, uh, is great. He, he, he helps me practice on politicians because he was in politics for so many years. He says he listens to people having the other political point of view, which in my mind makes, how can they think that? He says, I listen to them and I try to think, they think they're right. Maybe they are. You know, you know, I could be wrong. My my mind right away says, no, 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 you're not wrong. But you know, when I think to myself, I could be wrong. How do I know? You know, I think, I really feel. But everything is conditioned, like what I think and what I, you know, the other person's is a a, a misguided idea, and mine is the truth. You know that. Uh, but they're all views. How do I know? And by not clinging to fixed views of poor-hearted one, that's two of the last lines of the Metta Sutta, by not clinging to fixed views, I can have a view. I think it'd be better this way and that way. But how do I know? We'll see. I make my voice known. I call my Congress people. I write letters. I vote. I send money. After that, I can't do anything but watch it play out and preserve a certain amount of mind clarity talked about when you don't, he said, if you have absolute altruism, uh, no greed, no hatred, no delusion, you have uh, you um, no jealousy, no anger, no delusion, then, then uh, greed, it means greed is gone, it means hatred is gone, it means your mind stays clear, not uh, clouded by all those uh, afflictive emotions. If it's not clouded, all delusion is gone because you see clearly how things are. You see, some people believe this and some people believe that. What do you know? How do I know what's right? I think I'm right, but who knows? We'll see. Do the best I can. All those kinds of things that in the end you think, uh, what's wisdom? Wisdom is. You can't change this moment. It already is. You can work for the future. Wisdom is when your mind is clear, you make better decisions than when it isn't. Uh, another wisdom is when your mind is clear, you're, you're and less suffering than when it isn't. For myself, when my mind is clear, my own goodwill is much more uh, available to me. My own goodwill is more available to me. I'm much more forgiving of myself and everybody else. I uh, noticed in uh, one of my children's homes over the weekend, you know, there's a little sign hanging in, in, in the bathroom that says, uh, live imperfectly with delight. I thought, oh, 
I should have that as a rubric <laughs> because we all live imperfectly, even however hard we try, you know. Um, and I sometimes say things that I say, oh, I wish I hadn't said that, or I do things where I wish I hadn't done that. And, it, and when I really was like, oh, I shouldn't have said that, oh, I shouldn't have done that. I do actually make a mental determination. I'm going to try not to do it again. But I also am pretty good about not giving myself a very bad time about it because it's already done. Say, okay, you did that. Now we make a mental note, don't do that again. And you made a mistake. People make mistakes, you know. I made a mistake. My mind wasn't clear. Um, I think the idea of uh, um, giving myself a little slack I think we all actually could probably give ourselves a little more slack than we do. Probably more, more hard on that. Many people, maybe maybe you not, are more hard on themselves than other people. Oh, I didn't do this, didn't do that. To live imperfectly with delight. You know, because I'm trying the best I can when you think about it. Life is funny. It's peculiar. You see all these people wired for compassion, who want to be good people, want to do good things. We run around bumping into each other. And a lot, accidentally, we hurt each other, we hurt each other's feelings, don't mean to. What about we could say, all right, we're doing the best we can, apologizing all over the place, making amends. So the two things, he said, you have to know impermanence, and you have to, uh, you have to know, really, wisdom. It has to be in there, clearly. And you have to uh, have cultivated this absolute altruism. So I was I was thinking them through further. Well, I have to. I'm going to go off on a little bit of a tangent, but I'm going to come back because I was thinking more about how to develop the idea of wisdom, the wisdom that everybody's in this together, that um, the mind can accommodate what uh, what challenges it meets. Uh, the same time I, was, I came home from there, and I was putting together all my notes from the Dalai Lama and. Uh, getting ready to talk to you this morning. And at the same time, I watched a great deal of television last night. I don't watch television normally. But I watched the Tour de France at least twice because I watched it in real time and then I watched it in the reruns. And sometimes I left it on on the television all day long because uh, I really appreciate cycling. I, you know, I, 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 you know, I really like cycling. I like France. I like the pictures of them cycling. Uh, it's a beautiful sport to watch. It's like ballet. It's extremely difficult to to cycle in that peloton. So I was I watched a lot of the Tour de France, and I got to feel excited about the people who were on and off of the winning place. I was thinking how much dharma there is in doing anything. Uh, so, for instance. Uh, in the, in, while I'm listening, I'm inadvertently hearing, uh, not inadvertently, but you hear advertisements all, all through it. And the advertisements are, uh, some of them, I guess, are for cars, but mostly for, um, there are a lot of beer advertisements. Yeah. And uh, I'm particularly writing down the tagline of advertisements because I thought to myself, how crafty these uh, advertising agencies are. There's an ad for Michelob. This is not saying anything about beer or not beer. Just it's an ad for Michelob. There's all kinds of beautiful images of beautiful people 
having very low-calorie beer and making a point about how great low-calorie and they're pouring it in. And at the end, the tagline, as people are raising their glasses, it says, uh, with Michelob, you'll never have to settle for less. I think that's a complete lie. <laughs> First of all, I'm not even sure it's true about in the realm of beers. There's probably some better beers in Michelob, but it's certainly not true in the world that you never have to settle for less. You always have to settle for less. It's never exactly as good as you could imagine it. And the whole life is getting a little... Isn't that true? I mean, even the best, you could improve on it a little bit. It could have been a little better, a little longer. If you're having a marvelous vacation, holiday, perfect, everything goes right, it could last a little longer, you know? <laughs> but we have to go home. But, and the mind is always compromising. And when it doesn't compromise, then we suffer. The mind gets into a problem. I want more, more, more. I think we're in a chronic state of getting more, wanting more. Uh, there was another commercial, maybe it was Michelob, something else, though, that um, they ramped up and hyped up with some, a lot of beautiful people, maybe. doesn't matter. I, I think I know what brand it was. Something else, clothing, sports clothing. Uh, and it said, um, the tagline was, get ready for a life of endless pleasure. <laughs> So I said, and I, so I think to myself, that's also completely wrong. You know, nobody has a life of of endless pleasure, but the, the, it's very crafty to say that because, first of all, nobody challenges it, and people love it, and I think they go out and buy that clothing, because really, what we mostly would like is a life of endless pleasure, because we don't have it. And it's, it's like, I thought to myself, you listen to the ads, it's a non-Dharma talk. It's an anti-Dharma talk. It's exactly the antithesis of a Dharma talk. So then the best ad, you can go look up this one on YouTube. I loved it. Is uh, the ad for Traveler's Insurance. Uh, there are two ads, first of all, and they both feature a really beautiful dog who's a, a, a white, scruffy-looking dog, little dog. And uh, the first ad, which uh, I, I, I saw some weeks ago, I saw the second one during the, the tour. First ad, uh, the voiceover had kind of a musical thing, and the dog was worrying about his bone getting stolen or something happening to it. And it said, trouble, 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 worry, worry, worry. And it's this little dog that's worrying. He takes his bone and he runs to the bank and he puts it in a safe deposit box. But then he goes home to his doghouse and then he worries about his bone. He goes get it out of the bank, comes back and he digs a hole and he hides it in there. And, the, and it says at the end with travelers, you never have to worry about losing what's dear to you. The new ad, which is, which is super, it's a great ad. Look on YouTube, really. See the same dog is standing at the, in the foyer of his people's home, and the newspaper comes in through the slot in the door, and it falls on the floor, and it opens, and you see that the headline in the newspaper is, Cat Burglar at Large. <laughs> and the dog has a visual image of a cat burglar coming over the fence, and he runs out into his doghouse. And again, it's very dear. He's sitting there with his bone under his paws, looking around, worrying about the cat burglar. And then it's raining, and he's there, minding his bone. 
and then it says again, with tra- oh, and then the voiceover is a little song. It's very touching. It's kind of the dog thinking this song, and uh, which I actually wrote down the words of. The words of is, I just want to be okay. I just want to be okay. I just want to be okay today. I just want another day. I just want another day. Maybe in another day I'll be okay. Isn't that touching? I think that's the story of everybody's life. Everybody's life, they just want to feel okay. And they say that little song, and you resonate to it, because they're talking to the biggest fundamental fear that we have, is that we won't be okay. I think that uh, uh, the... I think that that's the fear. I won't be okay because we all have this yearning to be okay and that uh, uh, the kinds of disagreeable states that come up in our mind like worry, worry, worry or be mad, be mad, be mad or uh, be irritable, whatever are all uh, a response to the fact that we don't feel at ease. There's a line in the Metta Sutta that says, wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. And in order to get to that place, when we are in that place, I think, of gladness and safety, we automatically wish it for other beings as well because we intuit in that moment that everybody is thinking, worry, 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 worry. I just want to be okay. I want to be okay one more day. And somehow it's very, it's very touching, isn't it? And it's, but he has his travel's insurance, and it says, you'll never have to worry about uh, what's dear to you, losing what's dear to you. I thought that's completely untrue. Uh, what the, I mean, the, there's a, it, it makes it sound from the sentence construction, you might make the mistake of thinking, that you'll never have to worry about losing something that's dear to you. But I think the, the, the accent is on the wrong syllable. That if, if you had wisdom, you never need to worry about losing what's dear to you because, in fact, you will lose something that's dear to you plenty of times over in your life in all various guises. But it's up to you whether or not you worry about them. And it isn't traveler's insurance that you need. It's you need a equipment of mind that you need to obviate, to avoid that worry. Because it's going to happen. But, you know, you can actually get confused. I buy that insurance, nothing bad happens. Bad happens. That's actually why every week when we say what we're praying for, I'm totally stunned. Because I think, look at that. We don't all talk every week, but if we say, okay, think of something that you're praying for. I had three or four more things I could have said. You probably had three or four more things. Everybody's got something that isn't okay with them or with somebody else that we wish was. And nevertheless, you know, I I was thinking this is the other piece of wisdom. Nevertheless, we're heroic as human beings. Most people do not throw in the towel and say, listen, forget it. The Buddha was right. Life is dukkha. It's too hard, too challenging, I'm out of here. Everybody wants another day in which they might possibly feel okay. Most people do. 
the vast majority of people do. And the mass, vast majority of people feel compassion for people not having a good day. I was very, very moved by that teaching. Um, What else I wanted to say from what His Holiness said. <coughs> Never have to settle for less. You definitely do. He said it was, uh, this comes back to why I'm often saying at the end of the time that we sit and people mention the people who are on their minds that they're concerned about, that, uh, that that wisdom that everybody is suffering, there's a wisdom that everybody's intertwined with everybody else, but the wisdom that everybody else is suffering is what he said ultimately, is what converts one's own heart to compassion that everybody's in the same boat. It actually lifts you out of your own suffering. I'm not alone. It's not I uniquely who have uh, the cares and woes that I'm dealing with. Everybody has cares and woes. And if today is one of those amazing days where you don't have cares and woes, you know, uh, you, you, know you just fell in love, you just got a great job, the, well, the sun is shining, everything is perfect, it's temporal, you know. It's not going to last. I watched at the end of the tour, the man who won. Anybody didn't watch the tour? <laughs> Maybe most of you didn't watch. The man who won is a, uh, is a man named Cadell Evans. He's an Australian. And uh, he's a little man, actually, in stature. So that when he's standing up on that podium, you know, they have podium one, two, three next to these two very tall men from Luxembourg who are brothers who came in second and third, and they're holding hands like this. He's on an equal level with the, with the, with the hand-holding. It's very cute. He's a little man, but you know, clearly very strong. And, he, and he's been in the tour for six years, and he's almost won several times. And actually, when he won, and you know, his handlers, you know, come to greet him over the finish line. Of course, he's in a state of extreme fatigue, but he's crying also. And you think that must be such an emotional moment to do that. And you feel for him that I mean, he's very happy. And even when he's standing on the podium, smiling at all those people, he's also crying. And I think it's that people, people are so dear, you know? We just, we just, we laugh, we cry, we rejoice. I like to think as I watch these two other men who almost won. If you know about how those, uh, how those races are won, it comes out for a difference of one and a half minutes faster time over 21 days of cycling. So that, somewhat, so that his cumulative hours were 82 hours and something, and these other guys did the whole tour in 80, 82 hours and a minute and a half more over 21 days. These are very, very close times. And both of these guys came up on the podium, and they embrace him, and he embraces, and they kiss each other. They're in France. It was very nice. It's very nice. And in, in their hearts, I thought, I thought to myself, I wonder what they feel. And I, you know, I think I probably feel mixed. They probably feel, 
you know, that they wish it was them, but in that moment it's not them. And I think they rejoice that someone that they know made it. They'll be up there next year. They'll all be back next year. And maybe Cadell Evans won't be up there at the end. You know, things change. And I, you know, and, and if he is attached to having, to winning, and he loses next year, then it'll be painful. But if he says, this is my moment, I hope he did. Because everything, this is my moment. But I've really, really, really been thinking about how if you look at anything, you can look at a bike race, you can, if I had a more, more um, steadier mind, I could listen to, I could look at the news on TV, but I can't. I have friends who can do it. I let them give me the synopsis at the end of the day. I don't want to know. I actually do want to know, but I don't want to, I don't want to be part of the uh, uncivil discourse because it's unpleasant. Um, I think I, ho I hope that the, that's like uh, discerning wisdom. So I thought one more thing to say about um, the uh, the teachings that His Holiness did. You know, by the way, the people were building a sand mandala the whole time. So right behind him on the stage, I wonder. I could pass this around. I took some pictures on my uh, on my phone. And I'm sorry to say that um, my uh, my picture taking was not fabulous, and I think it's because I was so excited that my hand was shaking. Um, but um, but if I'll get you a picture that's one of the pictures that you sort of have a feeling of what's happening there. Okay. So uh, Amara. Yeah, how about have this and then pass it around? And I'm taking that picture, by the way, from where I'm sitting, so you see that I was quite close. Um, so on the corner of the stage, he's in the middle on a kind of a, of a throne and all these monks around. And in the corner of the stage, in what looks like a little pagoda area, uh, there are monks making the sand, uh, the sand mandala the whole week. So and the uh, the cameras that are showing these amazing close-ups of His Holiness and everybody else are showing you the close-ups of the monks doing that sand thing. It's amazing to watch it, and they do it. And on the last day, they take it apart and throw it away, and then they go someplace else and build it again. It's an amazing it's an amazing practice, you know. Uh, I who have so much trouble going through my closets and letting go of things. <laughs> So I, I, there was, there was, there was, I think, um, what did I wanted to say? I think I was moved the most by the sense of how many people, 14,000 people came there prepared to say, I really want to dedicate my life to the well-being of all beings and towards that end for the clarification of my own mind through my own practice and it depends on me. It was very exciting. Very exciting. So I was very, very glad that I went. And I thought that his having presented it as um, you need to have wisdom and you need to have absolute altruism. If you remember that the three parts of the path, as, as any Buddhist text will tell you, that the three parts of the Buddhist path are uh, morality, sila, and um, 
uh, the development of the mind, uh, the strengthening the mind and its habits, and uh, wisdom, panya, sila samadhi panya. And I think he talked about the sila when he talked about this absolute altruism. And uh, I think he talked about the, uh, the wisdom part when he talked about really the different ways in which we could grok the fact that we're not separate from each other. He did it in lots of ways, which I don't have the time or the skill to recapitulate. But he said it's the hardest thing to get it, really, that no one is separate from anybody else. But everybody's life is dependent on everybody else. We came here because, I mean, we have a life because somebody made us. And we stayed alive because other people made us. And uh, There's a... a, a I can't think of the name of the Scottish philosopher, McDougall, McSomebody, who uh, a friend of mine wrote a doctoral thesis on him. And he said, when we come into this life, we get caught by hands, and those hands pass us to other hands, and they pass us to other hands, pass us to other hands, and then at the end of our lives, some hands put us down into the earth, and then we get passed from one person to another all through our lives. And so not, you know, even when we get as adults and babies are passed into our hands and we think, okay, now I am the one. But someone's always carrying us, you know. We're carrying our children. I was looking at it. It just disappeared. Just disappeared. Go on the top and push that, uh, push the little thing, the little button on the top. Oh, the red thing. Yeah. We pressed all these other buttons. They come back. <laughs> Not coming back. On the top. Yeah. <laughs> top on the on the skinny part of the top. Yeah, the red button on the skinny part. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, I'll do it for you. Okay, I guess I'll have to give it back. Listen, I'm not. I'm not actually so brilliant about it, but I. I think I can get that back. All right. See, so press that, and it's there, and then you do that, and then you do that, and then it's back. There it is. Oh, I'm so glad I did that. Listen, I can text. I feel very hip. But this is what I want to end by saying. The middle part of the path, so I think he talked a lot about sila and panya, about ethical training and about wisdom, and not so much about the practice that develops the steadiness of mind. I'm sure it was inherent in, I mean, he gets up at 3 o'clock in the morning, according to reports, and starts in on his prayers. And as far as I could tell, <laughs> there they started in at 7 and went till 10, and that's a pretty long liturgy of, of training the mind. But I was thinking that, the part that I wanted to really um, think about is that what we do here at Spirit Rock, by coming here, by coming on retreat particularly, is we're working on the part that really is um, uh, focusing on training the mind in its habits, observing the mind in its habits, refining the habits of the mind, uh, steadying the habits of the mind. I think here we are doing that middle part of um, mind um, cultivation. And that's all to say that I, not all to say, 
It's because I want I I, I wanted to make that. By the way, did you did you like hearing about that? That I felt while I was there that I was your emissary there, and I took all kind of notes. So I want to know if you think I did it. Okay. Okay. Good. Because that was what I wanted to do. And uh, what I didn't talk about in the break that we didn't have <laughs> is uh, that uh, some of you know about this, is that you could leave it on because I don't mind this being on the tape as well, uh, is that it's not a secret now that the county has approved everything about the Spirit Rock plans. These plans were made 30 years ago. And about just after 19, well, we 89, no, no, okay, 20 years ago. The plans were made 20 years ago. The plans call for the center that you see all built up here and a whole complex of buildings down here. This building, as you can see, is not in a very good shape and it's overcrowded and it doesn't serve our needs enough. If someone comes up and says, I'd like to talk to you after class privately, we don't have a privately. We don't have any rooms to go to talk to people. We don't have enough classrooms. We don't have enough space for all the things that we do down here. The, uh, the, the, um, those new buildings, this is nice to know. The new buildings, which are now 10 years old, 12 years old, are perfect. You know, if you go in them now, they look like they were opened yesterday. They are so well maintained. It's absolutely incredible. They look like they were started yesterday, which is, they'll stay that way, I think. Uh, there are plans that have not, there were plans all the while for a lower meditation hall to replace this hall. Uh, it will be on the other side of the meadow, on the other side of the road, and it'll be a big round room, actually bigger than the one up on top of the hill. And it has classrooms on the side of it, and upstairs and downstairs, and all kinds of places for small groups to meet and big groups to meet. And uh, this meadow is going to become a meadow with a stupa uh, in the corner of it. So it'll become a kind of a holy walking place. People can go walk around the stupa. And um, the, uh, these trailers, which are in quite a terrible shape, will be replaced and moved over on the other side of the road with a building that's going to be the administrative building. And behind that building, and it's also going to be the place where when you come on retreats, you sign up there. And so all of that administrative business happens down here. And then behind where we currently have that really sad looking trailer park where our resident staff has been living so nobly all these years, that has to get replaced with actually decent permanent buildings. So there's going to be a, enough housing there for a permanent resident staff of 25, which will include staff teachers, it will include people on campus all the time who could meet with students. It will include apartments for teachers who hesitate to come here because they have a, a child or a partner and they can't stay in the residence halls. And uh, especially for month-long retreats, if you can bring your family and stay here, that we could have more teachers of renown come from different places. And moving the teachers out of the residence halls will also make more room for more people to be in the residence halls. So it's a great plan. Uh, 
Uh, I'm particularly at, at some length telling you about that because somebody said, you're going to build in a time like this, you know, expand. So we're not expanding. I said, we're really just replacing what we have to replace because this stuff has really outlived its shelf life. And uh, it was meant to be replaced. And um, I have to whiz up my talking. I'm going around, starting in two weeks, on the 7th, there's an event up in the, up in the upper hall, which I am now inviting you all to. When I invited uh, three weeks ago, or whenever that was, I said, uh, it's really an invitation that's going out, first of all, to people who are pretty sure that they're committed to um, making a gift of $1,000 towards this whole building drive. Some of you will remember that 15 years ago, there was a Sangha of a Thousand Buddhas, and I did the math one day. It actually has to do with the fact that I didn't, I, I have the wrong politics to be wanting to find donors of tremendous affluence. I have tremendous respect for the donors with great affluence who have built a dining room or a something room. But my politics from me, from my parents before me, uh, politics that believe if people want something to happen, a lot of people should come together and do it together and be equal partners in it. Those are my politics. That I get excited about. That I feel is a really, uh, that's the way to build a community. So at that time, I said if I can get a thousand people to uh, join at a level of a thousand dollars, which sounds like a lot of money, it is. Most of us uh, when I give $1,000, I know about it. I remember those organizations to whom I gave or give $1,000 a year. So it's big enough so that I don't forget it. I know that I am a shareholder in that enterprise. But it's not so big if you divide it over three years. And I said, why don't we make it so that people can give that gift, which comes out to $27 a month, just out of their, uh, out of their MasterCard, once a month, we put, them, we put your name and your gift in your billing system. And every month, you get a little notice that says $27.70 went to Spirit Rock. You open your MasterCard or your Visa or whatever, and you feel, oh, good, look what I did. And then after 36 months, it's finished. Actually, people have liked that. Actually, it worked so well. I said, we'll get 1,000 people, we'll get a million dollars. We got 1,300 people, so we got $1.3 million. And now I'd like to get a little bit more people, because we have more people on the mailing list. It's 15 years later. We know more people. The end is in sight. We have that beautiful upper hall. I think we can do it. And, I th and so it's, it's been a secret, because the county hadn't okayed everything. So on that fifth, on that seventh, the uh, the the uh, the fete that's being planned is that uh, Jack and I will be there because it's our birthdays, and it's the birthday of this uh, community of thousands of Buddhas. Last time we had the Sangha of one thousand Buddhas. Now we're having thousands of Buddhas, and hoping that thousands of people. Well, we couldn't have thousands of people come. Hoping that three hundred is the limit that we can have who will come prepared to sign up. You don't have to give the whole $1,000. Just sign up. You can even say, wait two months before starting me, or wait till Christmas before starting me, or, or start me now, or pay the whole thing now, or whatever. But uh, 
So we announced that, and that there are about 100 people coming now. So we have a room for more. So now I am amending that uh, uh, invitation to say, if you'd like to come, it's going to be a very lovely afternoon, a birthday party, Jack and I in conversation, Jack and myself in conversation about, um, I don't know, about Spirit Rock, about generosity, about Dharma, about what we've learned in the last 40 years. The, what we decided is we're not going to decide what we're going to talk about until we get up there. And we'll have a conversation with each other. But we're very old friends, and we're good conversers. So, and it's a free event. So now you're free to come uh, without the sense of imperative, I have to sign up. Certainly hope that when you get there, you'll think to yourself, well, $27 a month, I could do that. And you sign up, because people are going to sign up there. As a matter of fact, I have in my very hand right here, <laughs> sign-ups, so that, there you go, so that should you want to, um, oh, why don't we pass them out? We have, no, we have plenty. Why don't I pass them out? You can take them home, talk to your partner, talk to your children, Stand up. Uh, <laughs> think about it. Uh, should you send in your pledge before that, you'll get a formal invitation. Oh, I should have worn my pin. Where's my pin? You get, you get, people say, what do you get for joining the Sangha of Thousands of Buddhas? You get the great pleasure of knowing that you, along with, I hope, 2,000 other people, will be responsible for building the new meditation hall. That's the biggest perk, is you get to know do that. The other thing is you get a little pin that says Sangha of a Thousand Buddhas. The other thing is in a little while... And these are invitations to the event. Oh, these are invitations to the event. Anybody want an invitation to the event? Uh, you also get to, uh, pretty soon, when I come back in, uh, uh, on November 1st, we're going to start having monthly uh, teleconferences for the Sangha of thousands of Buddhists, just to have com communication, just to talk. So those are the perks. We get to talk on the telephone with other people if you want to once a month. You get a pin. But most of all, you get to know that you're doing this really noble thing. The reason I like it so well is I really think everybody can do it. You know, I'm a great, I'm a great champion of egalitarian politics, and uh, it suits my politics. Harriet. What time is this event? Four to seven. Four to seven, and uh, and you have to RSVP because and you have to RSVP because uh, they only have a certain amount of space, but they're going to show videos of what it's going to look like, and <laughs> there's going to be um, stuff to eat as a birthday party. You know, the last time we had a birthday party was five years ago, and I was seventy. And you get oh, actually, if you if you join, you get to sign. We're going to have a big, you know, like Alexander Hamilton. You know, that uh, we're going to have a great scroll, and they're going to have a scroll signing. And I don't know if all 2,000 people, most people are going to be all over the country. They're not going to be able to come and sign. But the people who are there, who already joined, will get to actually sign that very scroll. So here's the thing that you have to think about this, because it came up. If you are two people and you're deciding to give $1,000, you have to decide whose name goes on the, on the scroll. You don't get two names for the price of one. It's just a thing. Because we got caught on that last time. People said, look at that. It's got so-and-so, John and Mary Smith. And they got on 
a Buddha, and I was able to, anyway. So, but you know what? I, I'm going to sign my own name. My husband will sign his own name. He's his own Buddha. But if I, but I'm, but if I didn't need to have my name on it, I'd sign my father's name on it, or my mother's. Maybe if I decide to do a second thousand dollars, I'll sign my mother's name on it, because my mother would have loved this fun drive. It would have just suited her politics perfectly. So I'll do that in a little while. Maybe I'll get my pledge started, and then I'll sign my mother's name on it. You know, it's going to be for posterity, that scroll's going to be somewhere. My mother's been dead 50 years. It'd be great if her name was on a scroll somewhere. So sometimes people, somebody said, I want to do it for my son in honor of his graduation. You could make your son a Buddha. You could make a new baby in your family a Buddha. Anyway, that's it. We've been here past. Oh, and the, the other thing you get, you get a pin, you get a phone call, and you get a signed copy of... Um, Happiness is an inside job that I'm in the middle of signing. So, so do you know that you're scheduled now for the, like in August? I do. I'll tell you. I'm in Omega next week, so I'm not here. Um, Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.